Welcome to the River City Church Podcast and a message by our lead pastor, Jason Powers. Our prayer is that this message would inspire and encourage you, build your faith, and point you to the life-changing love of Jesus. May you enjoy the goodness of God as you follow him today. Before we jump into the message, I want to kind of acknowledge something today. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, or 7, I don't remember exactly what it was. He said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. It's an important distinction because there are peacekeepers and there are peacemakers. And what Jesus didn't say is blessed are the peacekeepers, right? The peacekeeper changes the subject when it gets uncomfortable so we can talk about something else, right? You talk about something and he's oh, let's talk about peacemakers. Instead, when we sense division or separation or hurt or pain, they wade in cautiously, gently, and they bring out truth and they do what they can to bring people together. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers as they'll be like God. So in the church, our role and our responsibility is to be peacemakers. That's what God is like. That's what forgiveness is. The way he makes peace between us and him is through forgiveness. Okay, so none of us come to God on our own merits. And so that's the thing. Real quick, I just want to take a look around and you'll notice a couple of things in the room aside from there not being any empty chairs, which reminds you, you should come to our annual meeting this Tuesday at the video at the venue over in uh, Fryheit Village. It's a church, it's a building that we're going to buy. We're looking at it. We'd love for you to see it and see what it's all about. Nonetheless, that's not what we're talking about today. There's a great opportunity for the church to make peace in the world, but we have to acknowledge that in order to be peacemakers, we have to walk into difficult territory. Are you ready for that today? Some of you are like, tell me, and then I'll let you know whether we're ready for it. (laughs) Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Oh, now there's that silence, right? I want you real quick to look around the room and see if you can identify the evil people. The people are here so as to thwart the will and direction of God. I don't see you. That must have been first service. They were all in here. So our calling as a church is to be peacemakers, to enter into territory where we are separated and where we are divided and to make peace. And I think on this subject and this topic, there's no greater opportunity for the church to be peacemakers in our world. So what does sanctity of life say? It's changed a little bit because last year, because of what happened with Roe versus Wade this year. And so what I want to know, despite the fact that we are in this room, not good and evil people, we are on different sides of this issue. And so how does the church be a peacemaking force on this issue? What we do is we pray. Now, here's the thing. We are, Jason Powers, here's what I believe. Psalm 139, the psalmist says to God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Before one day was formed, you knew all of them. All of the days of my life were written before one of them existed. My belief is that God creates life and life starts early. That's my belief and my conviction. And I know some of you in this room disagree with me. So how do we make peace on this? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to understand the objections of those who disagree with us. By and large, the large percentage of people who disagree with this idea, what do they care about? They care about the life of the woman. They care about the life of the child in this world. What's going to happen? And here's what I can say. I care about that too. You know what I care about when I think about women and abortion? I care about all of those women since 1973, who for whatever reason have had an abortion and want to deal with it and have felt like the church is not a safe place for that. Listen, I say as a pastor of a church, church, we have to repent for that. The fact that the most broken people in society seem to be drawn like a magnet to Jesus, but not to the church is a problem. It is a problem. So I advocate for the life of women. And I want you to know, I want you to hear me clearly on this. 
The statistics outside of the church say something like one in three, one in four women have been through this. We are foolish if we think those numbers don't come into this room. So here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to know. If you are in this room and your life has been touched by an abortion, either yours or someone else, this is a place where you don't feel shame. You are welcome here. You do not have to hide from me. You do not have to hide from this congregation. And the reason is because you don't have to hide from Jesus. That is our stance on pro-life. Now, church, we ready? We got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of going on right here because guess what, right? Like we had this big thing. We celebrated, hey, in the church, if you celebrated this Roe v. Wade, if you didn't celebrate Roe v. Wade, that's probably why, right? Because you're worried about all of these terrible, hard, difficult things, right, on for all of these mothers, right? Well, here's the deal, church, guess what? If you were pulling and praying and cheering for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. Guess what? You got it. Guess what? Our job started that day because guess what? We were in a foster crisis before. Now what? Church, this is our moment. And we will either gain and maintain credibility on this issue or we will not. And so our prayer as a peacemaking church is that all life, the life of mothers, the life of children, the life of unborn pregnancies, the life of women who are caught and don't possibly see a way out, our prayer is number one, they would know hope, number two, that they would find Jesus, and number three, that this, the church, would be a gathering where they feel welcomed and loved and able to walk out even the most difficult But if there is a sense of shame or hiddenness, that'll never happen because they'll just live in secret. This is not that place, right? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you created us here. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have a purpose for our life. And Jesus, we acknowledge that we need you. And we acknowledge even in this room that we're divided. And we acknowledge that nobody on either side has a position and believes that they are against God's desire. So Father, I pray that you would give us humility in that. And I pray that we would choose to battle together over what we agree on, that life matters to you. And I am, Jesus, I'm pro-life. Help me to have grace and compassion with people who are different from me as they seek to follow you. May we talk about our our ideas and our beliefs, but may we gather together around you. We thank you for this day to remind us that that in difficult and, and uncomfortable situations, we pray and we come to you and we thank you. So Jesus, I thank you that we have this great opportunity to walk this out. And I pray, Jesus, that you would be glorified by the way that we treat each other, by the way that we talk to each other, and by the way that we advocate for your life. So we ask Jesus all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. We're going to watch a quick video and then we'll start. It's really okay to disagree. It's hard. It's hard because we want our disagreements to be right and wrong, good and bad, right? Like we want our disagreements to be how we evaluate and how we, how we judge people. But I think our disagreements are just an opportunity for us to go, Lord, let us have grace with ourselves and with each other as we follow you. There's a powerful phrase that I've learned that I don't use often enough, but I should. It says, I think I'm right, but I could be wrong, right? I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. And the more I live in that space and the more I live in that, in that tension, the more it causes me to see you beyond just the sum total of your ideas and your beliefs. We just kind of started talking a little bit. Last week, we are in a series called Blueprint. We started talking about, we started the series by looking at John chapter three and Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus had made it, right? He was like the 
kind of top of the social food chain at the time. And Jesus was like, listen, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. And Nicodemus was like, that doesn't make sense. But the idea behind this whole John 3, and really what we're going to talk about in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 over the next couple of weeks, what we said is this idea that there's no new life without new birth which is confusing because we've already been born, which really gives us a clue, right? Re means again, right? So it's life again, born again, right? And when you think about re, right? Like, like say a car, you want to restore a car. The idea behind restoration of a car is you take a car that is and you get it back to what it looked like when it was new, when it's fresh. And so maybe you do a paint job and maybe you restore the interior. Maybe you put a new engine in it. And there's all kinds of restoration. Some of it is completely faithful, only factory original parts and all that. Some people say, I'm going to take a 1940 and I'm going to soup it up and I'm going to make it all kinds of new ways. But if we're talking about new life, that Jesus comes to give us new life, to be born again, to be reborn in him, it raises the question, well, what was the original supposed to be? If I'm restoring a 1950s Corvette, I got to know what a 50s Corvette originally looked like. So when we talk about rebirth, the question comes, what did the original birth look like? If we are created new in Christ Jesus, what did the original creation look like that we're getting back to? What are we going back to in that? And that's what Genesis is. Genesis is an account of the first things. And I think especially, particularly in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we can find unique in the account of God's creation, we can find a metaphor and a picture of what it looks like us to find and to follow him. But I do have to say, Genesis 1 may be one of the most difficult, controversial, even divisive texts in all of Scripture What's happening? What does it say? What does it mean? What's going on? Was it six literal days or is it figurative days? Is the earth 6,000 years old or is the earth a billion years old? Are you ready? Is it 13 billion years old? You want to know the answer? I don't know. Do you know why I don't know? Because it doesn't say. And some of you are like, yes, it does. This is what we have to figure out. So here's what we're going to do today. We are going to take a rocket ship and spend our time on two verses so that next week when we start unpacking day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, we've got a better sense of what's going on. So how are we going to understand Genesis chapter one? The first thing that we have to understand is Genesis chapter one is an ancient Near Eastern creation text. And all that means is that Genesis one is a text about creation that was written in the Near East during ancient times. And here's the thing, you know, okay, so this is, this is where I get really nerdy, okay? Because like I'm a nerd about the Bible, but I'm really a nerd about literature. Okay, that's my idea, literary criticism and all of that. And so what that means is like, there are other ancient Near Eastern creation texts that we can look at and compare. And I just want to pause real quick and just acknowledge, you might right now be real nervous about pastor talking about Genesis. Let's see. I get it. I understand. Hey, I'm going to acknowledge people get weird about this. Hey, Sometimes weird is just weird, right? Sometimes the Lord's going to call us to do things that people are going to go, that's funny. <laughs> Forgiveness, that doesn't make any sense, right? But sometimes weird is just weird. And I think some of the things that we've done with this passage are just weird, right? So let's look at some other ancient Near Eastern creation texts and let's see what we can learn and see what we have to find out about Genesis chapter one. If you go all the way back to kind of Babylonian times, right? And there's this... Uh, creation myth. is called the Enuma Eilish, right? And so what we want to do is we want to see kind of these, these myths and see what elements kind of pop out. So in this uh, Enuma Eilish, this ancient Babylonian thing, what we have is the beginning of the story, what you'll find in a lot of accounts is swirling waters, right? Like dark primordial waters and some manner of God rising out of the waters. That's what we find in the Enuma Eilish, right? This God Marduk, this Babylonian God Marduk, who's always, they're always like associated with the elements. He comes out and the first thing he does out of the swirling waters, he takes a spear and throws it right through the heart of this other God. Interesting, a lot of violence, a lot of kind of all that. But what we find here is we're looking for similarities, right? He creates, comes out, 
out of the waters. And one of the first things in creation is Marduk begins to separate this from that. That creation is separate. Oh, over here, and you go over here. And he's creating, and he's separating. We get to the Mesopotamian uh, creation myth of, uh, how do you say it, Atrahasis epic, right? And what's interesting about that is the gods here in the Atrahasis, they take clay, these elements of earth, and they form them together to create mankind out of the dust of the earth, if you will, out of the dirt, and they form and they fashion. If we go to... Interesting one for me is this myth, uh, this Egyptian myth out of Heliopolis, right? And the reason it's interesting to me is because the Israelites for 400 years were slaves in Egypt. Their entire worldview would have been shaped and formed by these Egyptian myths, these Egyptian ethos. They were surrounded by them. What's interesting about this Egyptian myth, and again, a lot of the same elements that come out, right? You've got waters, you've got elements, you've got, uh, you've got, you know, all these kind of things, right? Sort of the separation. What you have in the Egyptian myth is this God, Atum. And what he does that's really interesting is he creates himself with presents logical problems, right? Creating of oneself is difficult. It creates logical problems, but we're kind of not going to get into that. But so through all of these myths, you find these elements, right? Primordial waters rising out and you find separation, creation by separation and calling it, right? Like this is that and that's that creation of mankind from the elements. And then we come to the scripture. We come to the Bible and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's, you see the similar elements in this creation account in the book of Genesis. Obviously, there are certainly some differences too. And what I would say is those differences are what's significant. The differences are what, to me, gives veracity to this story. But here's the question, right? Does it cause difficulties to you to find out that there are these common elements in extra Christian, extra biblical stories out there? And it makes you nervous. You're like, oh my gosh, maybe we just borrowed this and it's not real. And that's exercise. Say we all walk outside the door right here and we go out and you hear boom and you look out and there was a car accident and the police come, right? And someone that was standing over at the corner of the building is like, that guy come flying this way and it was going a hundred miles an hour and there was danger. Person over here says, no, the guy turned left out and they went, what we can agree on, there was a car accident. That car got T-boned. That car did the T-boning. And really for some things, that's enough. So when we find stories from all over the world that have common elements, rather than making us doubt those, what they do to me is they cause me to believe them. There must be a nugget of truth that keeps showing up in cultures all around the world, regardless of background, regardless of their kind of ethos and mythicism, whatever. They all seem to have flood myths. They all seem to have swirling waters and gods rising out of the waters and creation through separation and all of that. And so the question obviously comes, pastor, are you saying that the Bible is just a myth and that it's not literally true? You want to know that. So where did Genesis come from? I'm going to answer it directly and plainly everything that you're wanting. Genesis is not an eyewitness account. That's really important, okay? And we know it's not an eyewitness account because before the creation of mankind, we know what, we know what happened, right? So where did Genesis come from? The people of Israel, God comes to Abram and says, I'm gonna make a blessing of you and all the people in the world are gonna be blessed through you. And Abram has a son called Isaac and the promise goes from God to Isaac and from Isaac's son to Jacob. And God tells Jacob, I'm gonna make a nation out of you. The promise continues. And so Jacob has 12 sons and they become the nation of Israel. And for 400 years, we talk about this, they're in Egypt being formed and being shaped by the Egyptian ethos and by Egyptian religion and by Egyptian culture. And then God comes to a guy named Moses and says, Moses, go get my people. And so the people of Israel trapped in Egypt for 400 years, they hear a man comes to them and says, I am Moses and the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to get you. 
Okay, so now Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is the God who is calling out and he goes and God wins and beats the Pharaoh and all these people come out. And so now the question of the people of Israel in the wilderness, far away from Egypt, far away from Pharaoh, far away from that whole thing, the question on the Israelites' mind is, who is this God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Who are we, who is he, and how is he different? The story of Genesis 1 is a story told to an ancient people in the wilderness. The point was not to fix their cosmology. God, we're going to come next week, right? We're going to read on day two, right? And it's going to say, and he separated the waters above from the waters below. And you look up, you're like, there's not really waters, right? And so the idea behind the waters above is firmament, which means shell. So Genesis one talks about there's a shell around the earth, right? And some of you are like, ha, no, We have rocket ships and airplanes and weather balloons and we know there's not a shell. Okay, so now I want you to imagine that God comes down to an ancient prehistoric people who have just spent 400 years in slavery in a pagan, you know, barely, you know, prehistoric. They come out and all of a sudden, and God's not gonna sit down to them and go, okay, let's talk about light years. They're like, 200 miles is the other side of the universe to them. What are you going to talk about light years, right? I'd like to talk about quantum physics, right? No, God doesn't change. He doesn't say there's not really any primordial waters. You know what God says? Hey, you know how you think it all comes out of those primordial waters? Listen, if you were to go back to the primordial waters, you know what you'd find? God was there and God was doing it. And God was making it. See, that thing that you believe about the creation, you think Ra did it and then Marduk got it and then all these other people did it. What he's saying is, yeah, I know you got the basic flow of it right. Everything came from something, everything happened. But really, it was our God who did that. So let me be very clear for you. Are you ready? I believe that there is nothing in this universe that you have seen touched, tasted, or heard about that did not immediately proceed from the mind and the will of God. Let me say it differently. God created everything. I believe that, have I been clear? God created everything. And I believe that the story of Genesis 1 is not the account of the material creation of the world. I believe something different is happening in Genesis chapter one. And again, somebody like, yeah, but it's not literal, right? Here's what I want you to know. Reading the Bible literally means acknowledging the genre of the text. I have to read the poems of Wordsworth differently than I read A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, which I read differently from a history the history of Lewis and Clark, right? Here's an example. Say we go to Psalm chapter 19 and Psalm chapter 19 begins in Psalm 19 verse one, right? It says the heavens declare the glory of God. So we're talking about the skies and the stars and the space, right? This, and listen to what verse four, the heavens, right? Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever literally heard the sky speaking words to you? If you walked out on your way to work today and it came up and said, Sean, you'd freak out. Listen, in them, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun. Is there really, if you were to chase the horizon far enough, would you find a tent where the sun slips into each night? It'd have to be a big tent, heat proof, fireproof for sure. Or is Psalm 19 trying to poetically convey something that is significant and is special far beyond where the sun goes at nighttime? Psalm 19 is a poem to be read as poetry with imagery and with metaphor. And we don't have a problem with that. We read that and we look at it and we know. Let me read you Isaiah chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now this is different than Psalm 19, right? You know how it's different? Because it has a date. In the year that King Uzziah died, I can go back and find the year 647 BC, and the King Uzziah died. And so what this does is it places us in a time and in a space. This is not written like mythology. 
They didn't have Harry Potter as a literary genre, right? Where you place myth in time and space, right? This is given an account as time and space. And it looks different. It reads different. We have to read history differently than we read poetry, differently than we read letters. So it's important that we know what's going on in here. So Genesis 1, and I'm going to unpack way more of this next week, is a literary genre that we called elevated prose. Lots of poetry, lots of repetition, lots of metaphor and symbol. Are you getting nervous yet? God created everything. God made you. Another thing happens. If you look at, if you brought your Bible, if you didn't, you can look on your phone, right? So I read, this send right here means that this Bible is the English Standard Version translation, okay? Your Bible may say NIV, New International Version, or New American Standard, or the Ryrie Study Bible, or, or whatever, New Living Translation, whatever, all those things. The Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and, and along this. And what that means is that the Bible that you read today and the Bible that I read today has been translated. And translation is an act of interpretation. Every time we come to a, a Greek or a Hebrew word, a person or a group of people have to decide what that word means and what it means in context. And sometimes those people come to different conclusions. Sometimes those people see something or they read a nuance into a word that means something. So what does that mean when we deal with something as significant and important as the text, as the scripture? What it means is, I believe I'm right, and I could be wrong, which is the word humility. We approach the scripture humbly with grace. Because again, I look around and I just go, you may interpret this passage of scripture differently than I do, but that doesn't mean you're evil. Let me tell you a few things that we don't have to fight about, but they just mean we're doing different things, right? There are a few theological hills that I will die on, okay? You can find those things in creeds. If you go look up the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, there's all these creeds, right? These are important. These are general orthodoxy. Here's what I believe, and I'll fight you over, like not really fight you because I'm not a fighter, but I believe, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in his only begotten son, Jesus, who was tempted suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and resurrected. He's coming again. We don't have to agree on those things, but those are the Christian things. Outside of that, spiritual gifts, maybe. The closed canon, maybe. Six literal days, maybe. A billion years, maybe. Jesus Christ loves me and died for me, yes. A hundred percent, a thousand percent, yes. Those are the things that we can fight and we can die on, right? The Bible is too important not to be taken literally. And I think, unfortunately, I think the problem is we hear that. And so what that means is we get this wooden, literal reading that doesn't leave any space for humility, for grace, for context, for realizing that we're reading a text that is thousand years old and not thousands of years old and not from our context. So what's the story? What's the thing behind it? What do we do with all this? What is the story that we say? Here's the story of Genesis chapter one. Are you ready? Genesis one is, is a good God's blueprint for life and a desire universe. Leave that slide up there. I want to talk about it real couple things. Genesis chapter one. That's where we're going to be this week and next week. It is a good God's because what I believe Genesis one, two, and three reveal is the absolute, astounding, overflowing, overwhelming, eternity shaping goodness of our God. And I think it is evident in creation. And I think we're going to see it hopefully starting today, hopefully definitely sing it next week. It is God's blueprint. Listen, we find Genesis chapter one, we find a tree in the middle of a garden, two trees in the middle of a garden. Fast forward to the end of the story to Revelation 21 and 22. You know what we find? Trees and gardens multiplied, spread out, filling the whole earth. The Bible is one story with a beginning and the beginning of the story is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness over the waters and the spirit of God hovered, right? So 
I lost my train of thought. So that's the story, right? That's, that's, that's where we go. It's a good God. It's his blueprint, right? That's what we say. When we look at the end of the story, it looks a lot like the beginning of the story, which means that we're now in the middle. We can reference back and go, okay, that's where it's getting. I got to get there. I got to get, I got to add that, right? For, what else did it say? For a designer universe. You know what's crazy to me? All of the qualities that make life habitable on this earth also make observation possible. Wouldn't it be terrible if the conditions for life on earth meant that there had to be a solid, dense layer of clouds covering the whole earth and we couldn't see anything else? Aren't we grateful that the kind of atmosphere that we breathe is clear and open so we can look into the Kuiper belt and look beyond? Isn't that great? It's almost like God wants to be discovered. It's almost like God wants to be found out. So next week, we're going to get real specific, but I want to stay general this week for just a minute, okay? Because this is the deal. Genesis 1 is probably my favorite. It may be my favorite chapter in the whole scripture because it's, ri- it's poetry and I like literature and I, and I like to do all that, but it's rich and it's full of hope. And it's full of very practical hope for your life and for mine. So let's look at the story and let's see where it leads us. The story, and I'm going to work backwards through Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So it begins with good creation begins in chaos. The problem is we hate chaos. We acknowledge chaos. And what we try to do is we try to stuff it or we try to cover it or we try to put it up. We try to order it. But deep chaos, well, it, it goes deep, right? Listen to what it says. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And if we go back to the first part of two, we find that there was darkness around the water. So in the beginning, God created. And what we're told is that the earth was empty and it was confused and there was darkness, but the spirit of God was there. And this is different from other account epics, right? Like the the Enuma Eilis finds these gods kind of like coming out of the waters, like, like, born in chaos, right? Like rising out of this. Like At no point do we find these turbulent waters creating or issuing forth our God. From the beginning, our God is hovering over the waters. Now hovering is one of those words. What does hover mean, right? Like we live in a day of hovering parents, right? Don't wear that. You're like, mom, I'm 27 years old. Let me wear the shirt I want to wear, right? <laughs> All of the things that were, that were, you know, we're, we're working on and we're covering over, right? Well, when we read that out of chaos, right? Let me get to the book of Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the end of the Torah. It's into the first five books, uh, Gen- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Okay. Because here's the deal that it, that it says, right? In the, in the ancient Near Eastern creation myths, we find these gods rising out of the water. Here it says there's hovering over the water, but what does that mean? Well, let me give you a description uh, where those words, and again, a lot of this is linguistic, right? It goes back to the Hebrew. What does the Hebrew mean? How is it used? So th- here's how those Hebrews words are translated, okay? Deuteronomy chapter th- 32, starting in verse 10. He found him, he's talking about Israel, about the people. He's personifying this nation, okay? He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of wilderness. Do you sense the chaotic similarities, right? Swirling waters, dark, formless and void. He found Israel in a desert land and the howling waste of wildness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of the eye. Now listen, here's where that idea of hovering over waters come from. Verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. So now we go back to this creation of Israel. And what does it say? Hovering over the waters isn't hovering to go, you're wearing the wrong shirt. To hover over the waters is a picture of a mother bird tending to her chicks, covering them, keeping them warm, bringing them safe. They can hear her heartbeat. She can feed them. All of those things. The spirit of God hovering over the waters is a picture of grace, of love, of compassion, of presence, of God's goodness in our space. The primordial waters are scary and our God is present and hovering and watching. And what that means is that God redeems What that means is that the chaos in your life, the spirit of God is hovering. So where's your chaos? 
Do you have relational chaos? Is your relationship with your kids or with your spouse or with your parents or with your coworkers, is it breaking down? Is it chaotic? You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's coming. What I would say to you is that's always where God's good creation begins. That's also the problem, church, when we pretend that we have it together more than we do, when we make our acceptance to God based on our behavior before others. The problem is we hide our brokenness. We hide our confusion. We hide our pain and our hurt. And the problem with that then is how do we talk about grace if we don't talk about brokenness? How do we talk about forgiveness if we don't talk about our sin? How do we talk about God being good if our whole story is that we are good? What I want to say for you is that very spot in your life where you're struggling, where you're wrestling, where you feel lost and out of control, where you feel hopeless and scared and afraid. What Genesis 1 tells me is there is a spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, hovering over that place, desiring to me. So what happens when the Holy Spirit hovers over the place? Good creation begins in chaos and it addresses the problem of confusion and emptiness. We're gonna have some fun with, um, with Hebrew here in a second, but first I wanna read Genesis 1, the first part of verse two. It says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. That word without form and void, it's two words in Hebrew. Those two words, are, I want you to say them with me, all right? We don't do this often, but these are fun words. Say tohu, good word, right? Tohu, say wa, wow. bohu, tohu wa bohu. You can say it with any inflection that you like. It rolls off the tongue, right? Tohu wabohu are the two words that are translated here um, without form and void, okay? So this is that, this is the question in creation. In Genesis 1, God created everything. In Genesis 2, everything is without form and void. Some translations say without substance, right? Like that's the whole idea that interpretation is translation. So if we're gonna find out, well, how, what do we do with this? What does it mean? What we wanna do is we wanna find where those Hebrew words show up in scripture. The problem is I don't have a Hebrew New Testament, but I do have the internet and I can go to a Bible site called blueletterbible.org and they'll have all of these Greek and Hebrew translations and you can look them up and they'll tell you what it is. But here's what's more important. They'll tell you where else in scripture you can find that word. And what it does, it shows how it's translated. It lets you know what that word means. So as fun as tohu wabohu is to say, if we want it to make any sense, we have to say it in English, right? So let's go. Another place where tohu wabohu is, it's, you, you can't stop saying it once you say it. Verse 34, and I'm going to read a passage of scripture just so you can get the, the, the flow, right? You can sense what's going on here. And I'll cue you in on tohu wabohu. Ready? Isaiah 34, starting in verse eight. This is a prophecy. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Zion means Israel. And what he's saying here is we're at a place where, God, where God's people, Israel, have been oppressed. And what we find is God's getting involved. So the question now is, what does God do when he gets involved? Okay, Verse nine, and the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch. That's tar. So I want you to imagine you go down to uh, Landa Park tomorrow and you know where the streams of the, of the uh, Comal River, it comes, there's that place, right? I want you to go tomorrow and instead of the streams of the Comal River coming out of that place, it's tar, thick, black tar. And it's just gonna keep coming and it's gonna fill all the river. That would be gross, right? It would certainly change the economy around here, wouldn't it? It would be a bad thing. Let me ask you this question, very important. Would the Comal River turning into tar, would it cause all life as we know it to cease existing? Would we all vanish? Would we like, de like, like dematerialize? Or would we just have like a hard time and we'd have to figure it out, right? Okay, good. You're thinking through this well. Night and day it shall be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. He's talking about their enemies and he's saying, it's gonna be terrible. But the hawk and the porcupine pine shall possess it and the owl and the raven shall dwell it. He shall stretch the line of confusion, tohu, 
He shall stretch the line of tohu over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Wabohu. Confusion and emptiness. If the Komal River turned to tar, it wouldn't cause life to cease to exist immediately, but it would sure cause confusion and it would cause life in that river to be empty, wouldn't it? So the picture of creation is not nothingness. It is not a materialism. It is materialism without purpose. It is material without form. It is material without void. Now, does that mean that God didn't create everything? Does that mean that I just said that it didn't exist, that it was a promise? No, I said God created everything. There was nothing that exists that doesn't exist. And Genesis chapter one is a different story. We're going to find that story next week. You should come next week. We're going to talk about that. It's going to be good. Right? So here's a question. Or here, here's the thing, right? God gets involved in places of confusion and emptiness. What does that mean for your life? Are you confused about your purpose? Parents, I have teenagers. It's a hard time to be parents of teenagers. Your teenagers ever confused about things, about identity, about sexuality, about relationships? I want you to know where there is confusion, the spirit of God hovers over waters. If you try to beat and discipline your kids into compliance, you may get a compliant kid, but you won't find a kid that's not confused. Give your kids to Jesus. Talk to them about the truth. Talk to them about love and grace and design and purpose and show them the scripture. Show them Genesis chapter one. But when you find confusion and emptiness, listen, you can't fill their emptiness. Do you know why? Because you're empty too. I mean, you got stuff. You got more stuff than your kids because kids, they don't really have much, but it's up to us to give it to them, right? But what I'm just saying is you have your own emptiness that you need the Lord to hover over. You have your own confusion that you need the Lord to clarify. And that doesn't mean I don't point at my friend Scott and go, Scott, you're confused about God's purpose and plan for your finances. But I do that as a person with my own confusion about finances and life and purposes. And do you see the humility that that brings when we realize, right? That's why we see our confession every week. We're badly broken. We need that. Because if we're not broken the very best that God's love will ever be for us is an idea. Because until I know that God loves me where I'm at, it doesn't feel like love or it won't feel like, but like love. So God is searching and he's confused. And so here's what I want to say. If you're here today and maybe somebody drug you here and you're not sure, you're not even sure. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe in a six day creation. I can't believe in all that, all right, whatever. Great. Here's what I want to ask. Whatever you feel like, let's resolve that later. Let's talk about that later. Do you believe that there can be a solution for your confusion? Because what I have is someone saying they can deal with it. Here's what I'm saying. I got a guy. If your car breaks, I got a guy. His name's Billy. I'll give you his phone number. He's great. He fixes all kinds of stuff, right? Do you have a confusion problem? I've got a guy. Now, if you want Billy to fix your car, you're going to have to drive it to him. You're going to have to leave it there. You're probably going to have to give him some money. You're going to have to answer some questions. You're going to have to do some stuff. It's not going to be easy, but when you get it back, it's going to be fixed. What if God came to you today and just said, hey, man, I can fix that confusion. I can fix that emptiness. But what I need you to do is I need you to give me your ideas about sex. I need you to give me your idea about security. And I need you to realize that your job is not your security, that your job is not your identity, but I am. And I need you to let go of all that. I need you to give that to me because unless you give me your life, you're just going to run around confused. And someday you're going to come to the end and you're going to go, is this what it was for so I could die in a hospital? That's not, that's not what God created life for. But he has to enter into that space. So he comes to confusion and he comes to emptiness and he addresses these problems. This is the problem with our creation, but he does this when God begins speaking. And this really, this is it. This is the pinnacle. Man, I had just gotten married. Uh, not today, like a uh, long time ago. And I came home one day and my father-in-law was at my house and he was fixing my fence. And I almost passed out, man. I walked into Natalie and I was like, what is your dad doing, bro? I can take care of my own household. I know, I know what he's doing. It was like an affront. The guys are knowing, right? The guys know what happens, right? And I was like, man, 
Get your dad to fix it. Stop. He needs to sit down. I'll fix it. I'll take care of my wife. I'll take care of my family. Right, that. God could get involved like that. He could just come around and start doing stuff. But you know what he does? He goes, Jason, I'm walking around. I'm lonely and I'm sad or I'm mad at my kids or I'm mad at the coworker. I'm mad at somebody. I'm not. Get him. And you know what? Jesus comes to me and he just like whispers in my ear and in my heart. And he just gives me this thing. He goes, Jason, they don't get to define you. I define you and I love you. Or when I lay on bed at night, I just want to cry because I'm so ashamed at that thing I did again. I can't believe I said that to my wife or my kids. I I can't believe I did that thing again. And I I hear Jesus whisper in my life, Jason, this whole thing is about forgiveness, man. This isn't about you earning it. See, creation begins when God speaks. Our God is personal. Do you know how you know what's on my mind? (laughs) Because you can't get me to shut up because it just keeps coming out, right? (laughs) Do you know how you can know what's on God's mind? Because he speaks. And you know what he says? Listen. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with, he was in the beginning with God. Now he's talking about the word as this like personification, right? It's Jesus. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and life was the light of men. See what happens when God starts speaking into your life, you start coming alive. But you know what? He's a gentleman and there's sometimes I wish he wasn't. I wish he would just like kick the door and like force himself on me so then I could go, oh yeah, this is so much better, but it's not. He comes and he says, will you give me your life? And you just go, no. And he goes, okay, I'll wait. And then when you have a moment and you get confused and you get empty and you get alone and you come and you're like, all right, I'll try. And he goes, great. He says, I want you to give me that relationship. Oh, but God, I'll be so alone. Or I'll be so afraid. I'm like, and you know what God says? Listen, are you listening? Because you think that a relationship that you give up, you can't go on without it. And you know what God says is I'll be there. You won't be empty. I'll be with you. But God, you're not like them. He's like, I know I'm eternal and I know you and I knit you together in your mother's womb. And before one day was formed for you, I knew it and I created it and I am for you and I'm on your side and I'm better. But God, but my dad, he said, yeah. I want you to know. I don't know where you're from. I don't know where you came. I don't know. There's a lot of you that I don't know in here. I don't know where you came from, but I believe with every fiber of my being, I'll stake my job and my life on this. You are here today because God is calling your name and he wants to create something in you that is so rich and full and beautiful and fragrant and abundant and blooming We have to say yes. We have to let him hover over our water. Now, next week, we're going to talk specifically about how that goes and how that looks. So you should come back next week and we can talk about that. But real quick, right? Next week, we're going to talk about the days of creation. But until then, here's a couple things. I'm just going to hammer these real quick, right? First of all, confess your confusion and emptiness to God and ask him for new life. This is if you're in here and this Jesus thing is new to you. Maybe you heard that God was mad at you or that God wanted to make your life boring or you're doing whatever. What I want to tell you, are you listening? Please listen to me. Just a few minutes. I promise we'll be done in just a second. God wants to give you life and he wants to give you the kind of life that looks like Jesus. And you know what's remarkable about the life that Jesus lived? No matter what they did to him, they couldn't crush him. They didn't stop doing things to him. He just finally won. And what we're told is that he sits at the right hand of God, the father reigning and ruling today. And that is real and that is eternal. And that's what he has for your life. But it begins with confession I'm confused and I'm empty. And repentance that says, I want your way. And guess what? You don't know what his way is yet. But it's trust and it's faith. We invite him into tohu wabohu of Jason. If that's you today, don't leave without that. And it is this simple. God, forgive me. Lead me into life as you have it. If you do that, it says that he will. If you did that right now, I want you to do this. Send me a text message. It won't buzz or anything like that. You'll be fine. Text the word follower to the number 9400. I'm not going to show up at your house. I'm not going to do anything weird, right? I just want you to go on the record for someone and just say, hey, I asked God to hover over my waters today. I asked God to bring peace to my chaos today. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to write your creation story. 
I want you to write about the, I want you to write your confusion. Where was the confusion in your life? Where did you find the spirit of God hovering over your waters? And when did it come to life? Here's the thing that's important, right? We live in the 21st century. We want to make our creation story all about us. I just put up my bootstraps and I did that. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. The story of creation is the story of God getting involved in places where mankind couldn't get to. Your creation story is the story of God. It's the story of John 1, 1. In the beginning of you was the word. And the word brought life and grace and peace. So write your story. Where was there confusion? Where did you find God and what difference did he make? Where do you find your peace? Where do you find your fullness? And if you find your story, if you write your story and you find that you can't identify those, that's okay too. Start asking Jesus to fill the emptiness, to fill the space. Last, speak to confusion and emptiness in Jesus's name. When you talk to your neighbors and you hear their life is confused, talk to them. It's great to talk to them about church, but talk to them about Jesus talking about your story. And you're like, oh, I'm not a theologian. Good, they don't want a theologian. They don't read theologians. They don't care about theologians. They want to know that it works. They want to know your story. They want to know where you find Jesus. They want to know where you find God. They want to know what God is creating all around us. And as his church, that's our story. So next week, we're going to, did I mention that next week we're going to talk about the specific days? I wasn't sure if I said that or not. You should come back. It's going to be good. It's going to be neat. But listen, here's the deal. If you believe the story of Genesis 1 means that there was absolute nothing and then God said, and suddenly from a material nothingness into full right, guess what? Yeah, I think I'm right. You may be right. I could be wrong. We'll find out someday. We're not going to divide over that because here's what I know. Whether he did it six days or a billion years, it all came from God. And without him, without him, there is still only confusion and darkness and chaos. That's what he came to remedy. So Jesus, we invite you into our lives to remedy those things in us. I do pray for anybody in here that doesn't know you yet. Maybe they're Maybe they came today because of the confusion. Maybe they came today because of the emptiness and they're looking and they're searching. And if that's you in here, will you just pray that? Father, forgive me. Jesus, fill my life. If you do that, he said he'll put his spirit in you to lead you and guide you and redeem you and restore you and lead you into new life. And Jesus, I pray that you would show us all the area. We don't just have one story of chaos and emptiness. We have a million of them. I pray that you would show that. I pray that you would give us the ability to put words to it. And I pray, Father, that your church would be active in aggressively addressing the darkness and the sins in this world, the sins of racism, the sins of poverty, the sins of all of them. Forgive us. Set us free. Let us be alive in you. Jesus, we ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. River City Church is all about experiencing and expressing God's love in our lives and community. And we hope that you've been able to experience that today. As grateful as I am that you've spent this time listening in this morning, this podcast is no substitute for full participation in a local church. I love it when River City people listen to other pastors, but it is those who show up week after week, faithfully giving their support and time and resources that make all of this possible. If we can help you get connected to a local church, pray for you, or support you in any way, click the link in the description and let us know. If you'd like to financially support the ministry of River City, click the Give link on our website in the description. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to share this with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. May the Lord bless and keep you in all grace and peace.